This week we are talking about learning, what we can know, what we don't know. And I was thinking about one of the things that I most appreciate, most celebrate um, from all of my time in school. I was blessed to be able to spend a lot of time in, in college and seminary and PhD programs. And one of my favorite things to learn about was languages, because you don't just bring another language to the table to a class. You know that you've learned something along the way because I didn't know any of those nouns. I didn't know any of those verbs. I didn't understand how to do this language. And at the end of it, you know something more and you know you've progressed. And so uh, one of the things that I love is I got to spend a lot of time with biblical languages and took eight different courses on Greek, a lot of Greek. And it makes it hard to say the, you know, the joke. It's all Greek to me. Uh, it makes it a little bit more challenging as you learn more and more Greek. Um, but I loved learning Greek. It was such an interesting um, language. But there was something that really hit me. Uh, when I was at Marquette University, you know, you, if you get into a PhD program, you're around a lot of people who are unusual. It's not usual to have so many people around you that are all so all in to learn all of the time and have such interesting little special, specialities. But we get into this Greek class, and all of these people in the room have been taking Greek for a long time. And the professor loved a specific exercise on the first day of class with every new class. And so he brought you into the room, and he opened up a text for you to read. And we were all meant to translate through this passage. And it looked weird, and it looked foreign, and it didn't make much sense. And it was Aesop's fables, a children's story. And the lesson of this first class project was that you might try to know as much as you can about the New Testament, how to read Greek, but if you don't understand Greek in its broader context and in classical context, even children's literature is actually really difficult. So it's meant to just bring you down a notch. Okay, you keep learning words like justification or all of this like religious Bible language. You gotta learn some other language too to appreciate what's that going on. But I think we all struggle with our own versions of imposter syndrome of like, do I belong? Do I, am I enough? Do I have enough skills, enough knowledge, enough uh, to make it in this job, in my family life? Am I a good enough parent? There's all sorts of things that we struggle through. Do I know enough to be good at this? And I think that we should just name the tension in the room that we have, uh, those of us in a worship who might struggle with what we believe. And different moments of the Christian calendar make for different questions that you're wrestling with. As we get to Christmas, the question is, well, how was Jesus born? What is this incarnation stuff? Was he actually born of a virgin? When we get to Easter, did he really raise from the dead? We have all sorts of issues of our faith that we are always longing for answers for. God, can you actually be that loving? Do you actually forgive? God, are you like this picture of violence in this Bible? What's going on in this story? We all bring our questions of faith, and we're not sure always what we believe. For some of us, our, our dealings with our mind is more apparent, that it's a, we're in the struggle, that uh, maybe you're dealing with some memory loss, maybe it's mild, maybe it's more extreme, but we might struggle with, well, what do I remember? How does that affect who I am? For those of you who have had maybe trauma, maybe you've had um, accidents, maybe you've had strokes, and you feel like, 
there was something I really knew how to do, and yet now I don't quite understand why I can't do that thing anymore. And we have this difficult relationship with our brain. Maybe for those who are young, you keep being told what you don't know, what you can't understand yet, and you might feel less than. Maybe for some, you've changed your mind over the years and you're wondering, what does that mean about who you are? Do people accept you? Will they understand you? We go through life with an internal dialogue going on, and we all struggle with, how well do I like my internal dialogue self? Do I appreciate myself? Does God, is God okay with my internal dialogue that's going off in my head right now? And so with those tensions in mind, I want to read for us the text that we've been working ourselves through from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. And he himself was not the light, but came to testify to it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have an interesting story that creates the, the interesting tension of the Gospel of John. The word, the divine uh, if you want the Greek word for word, the logos, you might hear logic, the divine logic, the rationality, the, the architecture, the blueprint of the universe, the word was with God and created all things, and yet that divine logic is not understood, is misunderstood, is rejected by its creation. There the tension that the entire gospel rests on that everyone who's going to come into contact to Jesus is going to have to struggle through, do I believe or not? Here's the word made flesh. What do I believe? And so I think that we would all recognize that we live in a world that does not easily believe or accept that divine word. Uh, in our own society, I was looking at statistics for the U.S., um, 30% of adults in today's uh, United States identify as no particular religious group. It's called the nuns. Um, religious membership, so people who belong to any religious community, whether that be Christian or anything else, has fallen to 47%. And the amount of people that go to a uh, worship service once a month is at 31% of adults. So we live in a world where it's pretty apparent the word was in the world, and the world did not know him. But I might try to console God for a moment to say, God, maybe you don't need to take it too personally. Uh, we don't believe a lot of things. It just happens to be that one of those things is God. We struggle with misinformation. We, we have a world where we still have to deal with flat earthers and Holocaust deniers. We still deal with everyday people sharing misinformation 
fake news, whether that's on social media or just in everyday conversations. We struggle with people who are experts in things and who, who tell us, here's what the research shows us, and we say, well, maybe. You believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe. And that's really tough in a pandemic. We know that it's a challenging world to believe anything, not just stuff about God. And so I want to talk a little bit about why it's so hard for us to believe and accept new things, to accept truth when it hits us, that sometimes we're closed off to truth. And I think the main reason, or at least one of the top reasons to why that is, is our brains are wired for safety more so than truth. If you are cooking pasta, you know, and you pour it in the strainer and, and all the liquid's going through, but you're keeping the pasta, if our brain was a strainer, it keeps things that makes us feel safe before other things. Uh, new information that I need to evaluate, is this true or not? I don't care as much about that as am I safe or not? And so what's interesting is the thing that makes us feel pretty superior in comparison to uh, maybe your pets at home, the thinking part of our brain that's so strong doesn't always get to be used. Other parts of the brain say, hold on, let me work first. And it's interesting that the limbic system, kind of the more inner part of the brain takes hold of us. It makes decisions about whether you're accepted or safe or not very, very quickly before your thinking self really gets to make any decisions. And so maybe you've, um, maybe for people who are married, you had a spouse who gave a certain tone to you at one point. And you responded, and suddenly now you're in a fight and you're in an argument, and you're like, wait, I love this person, why are we fighting? It's because your brain heard the tone of an aggressor. I'm not safe right now, and I've got to hold my fort, I've got to fight back. You're like, why are we fighting? And yeah, if you had cooler heads prevail, if you, in the sense of your thinking self got to make your decisions and think through it, we wouldn't get to the spot but the brain makes quick decisions on emotions. And so your brain takes in information and it says, is this safe for me? Does this fit with the way that I see the world or not? If it makes me uncomfortable, chances are my internal brain is gonna say, let's not think about this too much. Nah, 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 I'm not listening. And so our amygdala processes things so much faster than our thinking part of our brain. Um, but also, interestingly enough, the memory part of our brain, the hippocampus, is in that limbic system. It's not in this more thinking part of ourselves. And so for us, the challenge is, is we experience the world and we emotionally take in information before we ever think about it. And so it makes us not hear each other, makes us not hear God because we're too afraid of being vulnerable enough to actually think through and imagine the information that we're being presented with. And so for some of us, we have different biases that take root through these processes. Um, for some of us, if you've ever heard confirmation bias, it's the thing where you are trying to look for, what's the thing that makes me reinforced about, here's what I already believe. If I hear that little nugget, I get to just rest easy. The whole conversation, all of the data, I, I know that what I already believed is already okay. And so confirmation bias takes hold on us. Um, for example, um, 
I think most people talk about, well, lakes aren't what they used to be. The water isn't as clean as we like. The environment's not as clean as we like. Um, but if you were to hear the data that you yourself in your own household, if you personally recycle, it's not going to make any difference to the global situation. You are just too minuscule to make a difference. And if you're not inclined to care about whether we're using plastic straws or any of this conversation, you go, that's the confirmation bias I need to hear. What I do doesn't matter. Let me go about my regular life. But you might actually get into a bigger conversation that what happens when your personal habits affect the way that you advocate for bigger picture things, that your workplaces, your states, your countries, your world works to be a little cleaner, a little better for the environment. But if you just say, I don't want to do anything on that front, then when you hear the one nugget that gives you the out, you say, okay, that's all I needed to hear, doesn't matter, I'll go back to normal. That's confirmation bias and why we often ignore certain facts and truth. There's also anchoring bias, which is often the first thing that you hear about something, but, but you'll take one point and you say, I'm gonna evaluate this thing forever based on this one thing. And we do this all the time to people. Uh, if you dislike whatever the opposite political party is from you, there's a, an anchoring point for you. No matter the argument, no matter the conversation, but they think this, and that makes them awful. It's an anchoring point that lets us disregard other bits of information in our evaluation processes. For example, if you really don't like the idea, if it scares you about self-driving cars, and you're thinking, I don't want to be on the roads with a self-driving car, it's too scary. When you get the one news story about one vehicle that's been a self-driving car that gets in an accident, you say, ah, see there? They can cause danger. They can hurt people. Someone can die. See, that's the story. And it's the anchoring point. You didn't care about the 40,000 other deaths through car activities with regular people driving. But the one story becomes the anchoring point where I can dismiss everything just because of this one thing. And so all of that is to say that there's something inside of us that makes us hard to receive new information. We don't like to evaluate things too, too often because there's just too much data, there's too much information, there's too many decisions. Just make the decision for me. I just wanna trust that I've already been on the right path, I don't wanna reevaluate myself. And, and perhaps today's world, the thing that most reminds us of our limits, that most maybe worries us is, is how we've created machines to think in ways that seems like they're taking over our jobs, they're taking over our lives. And so we get confronted with, what if I put my worth in the fact that I, I'm really smart? When I look at my dog at home or my cat at home, I love them, they're adorable, but you know, I'm really intelligent. That makes me really meaningful, really valuable as a person. But what do I do when the machines keep getting smarter and make me feel like I'm not worth anything? When my manufacturing job, they're like, you know what, actually we want a robot to do this, it's better, it's more efficient, it's faster, it doesn't need breaks, it doesn't need vacations. Uh, and so we, we see a world in which our brain's limits keeps being shown to us. Um, it's kind of funny, I was looking at the stats of like, oh, computer stuff has been around a while where it's, it's been um, questioning our intelligence. In 1997, IBM's Deep Blue beat the world champion of chess. 
And we kind of take it for granted that, oh yeah, computers are just better than us at chess. We can't think through the millions of combinations of possibilities and do the, the statistics game of the best possible moves, but a computer can do it in an instant. And so if you've ever played chess on your smartphone or on a computer and you've played a, the computer at chess, you have been playing like a big parent playing its little child, saying, oh yeah, I'll play with you. I'll let you, I'll let you win this one. So we choose how strong of a computer we want to play at it because if it really wants to, it could beat you every single time, which would not be fun. Bad robot. Let us win some. Uh, IBM also made Watson, which went on Jeopardy and beat Ken Jennings in the Tournament of Champions people on Jeopardy. Uh, it, final totals, it, it, Watson had over $77,000 in that game uh, to $24,000 and $21,000. And they talked about the fact that they weren't sure how to play the game because technically the, like, the computer could just press the buzzer instantaneously. <laughs> You're like, this is not gonna be fair. How is the human ever going to be able to answer anything? You're just hoping it gets a question wrong if it can go that fast. And I'm like, okay, we'll make a hardware device that has to kind of simulate touching the button in a way that makes it a little bit more fair. But even then they're designing, we can't make this hardware device faster than a human's arm. So they're playing that computer to be slower and less effective. This week, maybe you saw online, OpenAI opened up their uh, chat GPT artificial intelligence thing where you can ask it any question and it gives you all sorts of amazing answers. Um, people are asking it to code things for the internet and it's great at that. Uh, teachers are learning, oh no, I can ask it not only to create a syllabus, give me reading samples for the week, uh, but I can give it, I can ask it, okay, I want um, rubrics for this class that you've created for me. Oh, can you give me writing prompts for essays? Can you write me that essay? And then it's giving you the essay back. And it's still not perfect if like, it's probably a C paper, but the fact that it can create a class for you and write papers for you is a little bizarre because it can happen in an instant. And you think about how long we go to school and to train to learn coding or to learn things, and, and you're like, this thing spits it out so fast. And so you might have seen if we're Facebook friends, I posted online. I was trying to think about what, how to do this. I posted a devotional from that AI. I asked it, okay, our text from today, John 1 through 10 through 11, can you, can you write me a devotional about how people don't know God in this verse? So it spits out a blog post style devotional, in which it does things about, it quotes the passage, it, it talks about, it asks questions, it, it poses problems people have, it ends with a, like, let us not be like the people who did not know God, let us live differently, let us accept God. And you're like, wow, what a bizarre world that a robot can spit out a devotional. And so we struggle with What's our value? What's our worth in a world where what seems like what makes us unique is suddenly more commonplace? And maybe you start feeling smaller in the scheme of the universe as our technology takes off. But in that world of struggles of how do I believe the right thing? What's my place in this universe? I want you to hear the good news of this passage. John tells us that the divine word the divine logic that is at work at the world did not respond to unbelief through judgment. God did not respond to unbelief by abandoning the world. 
God did not respond to our unbelief by hating creation. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God's response was love. And that's such a wonderful place to rest in, that no matter what you've believed, no matter how you've pushed back, no matter our limitations, our possibilities, that in the incompleteness of ourselves, even in our limitations, God's response to you is that you are loved. God responded with more hospitality, more welcoming, more love to the world. And so our human value is not in what we know, it is in who we are known by. God loves you, and that makes you enough. And so for those in this room and those who are worshiping with us online who struggle to believe the gospel, to to believe elements of the story, I invite you to just do what Jesus did, which Jesus said, hey, just come and follow me. The disciples that Jesus called did not understand hardly anything. That's the running kind of humor almost of the Gospels as they keep getting things wrong. They keep saying, oh, I know the answer, Jesus. Eh, Do you know the answer? Are you sure, Peter? But it's not that the wrong answer means you get kicked out of the group. Jesus loved them, accommodates them, teaches them, gives them parables so that they have to wrestle through the the beliefs themselves. He didn't just say, here's the theological treaties, believe these tenets and you'll be okay. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he told us stories, because he wants to walk us through belief for ourselves. To the young people listening who maybe have heard that you you don't know enough, you don't understand enough yet. Know that God loves you fully right now, no matter how others might diminish you. Don't let the children be pushed away. Let the children come to me, says Jesus. To those who feel grieved when their minds slip, when they can't remember all that they want to remember, know that no matter your memory, God remembers you loves you, cherishes you, always. And so, what then? Does, does our beliefs not matter? Right? Because if God loves us even before we believed, is there any value in believing anything? What difference does it make? Our beliefs matter because our, our beliefs, our lives have consequences. When we fail each other, we bring harm to each other. When we misunderstand each other, we sometimes hurt feelings. When we misunderstand each other, we sometimes cause accidents. When we misunderstand each other, we sometimes cause wars. Our beliefs make a difference because when we believe the wrong things, we go on a journey and a path that leads to failure, to hurt, to pain. But to follow God is to follow a path that is embraced with love and open arms to those, not only to you, but to those around you. And so, we have a responsibility. We are the, as Genesis talks about, the image of God in the world. We have a responsibility to reflect God's love, God's truth faithfully, and and not to let God down. It's It's like we're, you know, when children are growing up, they go through a teenage phase or so where 
You're like, you know what? I know better than my parents. And you start thinking all the things they've done wrong. And at some point, a lot of us get to a spot where you say, ah, you know what? I appreciate the challenge of parenting. I appreciate the challenge of who I was and what I was going through. But when you come to awareness that you're like, I didn't know everything, it's honestly how we respond going forward. Do you respond with love, with understanding, with truthfulness, or do you want to keep on just pushing back, keep on rebelling? Say, God, you know what? I get that I was kind of a mess, but I don't really want to think through this right now. I want to push that for later. Maybe, maybe later we'll get on better terms, God. And so it's on us to be that wandering child who runs back to God and says, yes. No matter what I've pushed against God, I say yes today. And so today, what we believe matters because the word, the logic of the universe is not the logic of perfection, it's the logic of love in the text. The divine word did not see creation as incomplete and say, ah, let's start over. God, God's logic for our lives is love. So let us love too. So today I want to invite you into something. No matter what you came in believing, thinking today, no matter where you are, God has a next step for you. For some people, you're like, I have maybe not told anybody about this, but like, I have not bought into my faith. I have kept it at arm's length. I've kept God at a distance. And maybe that first step is just saying yes to God. It's the most simple one-word prayer possible. But what is it to just say yes and to say, God, I'm taking down the barriers, the walls. I'm letting you get into all of me. My emotional barriers are not cutting you off. I'm going to think through you. I'm going to sit with you today. Yes, Lord. For some of us, we've been on this faith journey, but we've kind of done it on our own. We haven't let other people in on it. We haven't let our friends, our family, we haven't bonded with, with other Christians in, in church environments. We haven't done our faith together. And maybe it's about being vulnerable and having safety to say, God, I want to follow you with some other people. I don't want to do this journey alone. And for some of us, maybe you've been on this faithful journey for a long time and you're starting to ask other questions or, or you're starting to forget things and you're like, are all of my beliefs the same? Am, am I enough? Am I okay, God? And I want to invite you not to live in fear of the God who's going to try to throw lightning bolts at you, but the God that you see at work in Jesus, who even when there are wrong answers, continues to invite you to his table, continues to invite you to reflect more on who God is, continues to love you, even on your, your worst day. And so, today we are invited to use our minds, to allow ourselves to open up the fullness of our minds in their possibility and in their limits to what God might be doing in our lives today. I want you to hear a poem before we close. It is a poem from the, the AI. 
OpenAI's ChatGPT, I asked it, can you write me a poem specifically, can you write me a limerick about someone who is struggling to believe in God and yet is loved by God? And hear this beautiful poem. There once was a man who forgot his loved ones, his name, and his thought. But then he met Jesus who showed him God's love is for all and he'll never be forgotten no matter how small. Like, that's pretty good. May you rest in that today. No matter what you know or don't know, no matter what you've believed in the past and come to believe now, rest in the fact that God knows you, loves you, even still. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your never-ending love and acceptance. We thank you that you are faithful to us even when we run away. We're thankful that in the moments where we run back to you, we do not run back to a cold shoulder, but to a father running back to embrace their wayward child. Lord, for the prodigals in the room, for those who've ran the opposite way from you, we ask that it might be safe to reevaluate where we're running, to find your light, to accept you, to receive you today. For those who've been on this journey and who've been trying to say yes to you, who've been trying to follow you faithfully, we ask that you might turn our eyes not to just our missteps, but that we might be reminded of the ways you've empowered us to live out your loving call well. That we are of value and of worth because you say we are. Lord, for those of us who struggle with ourselves, that our bodies don't feel or look or, or operate the way that we want them to, Lord, we ask that you might help us to see ourselves through your eyes, that we have value, that we are loved today. Lord, may we extend that love, that patience, that kindness to those in our lives who sometimes set off all of the alarms in our brain that we're, at, we're in a fight now. Lord, bring peace as you bring your truth and your love. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.